You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning. How are we? Yeah, good, good. It is really good to see you. Uh, I say this like every week, but uh, if you're a guest, my name is Michael. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy and honor, as always, uh, to get to be with you as we open up God's Word together uh, in our study through the book of Colossians. Uh, We can pour one out today because this is our last Sunday in Colossians together. We're wrapping everything up this morning. And so uh, we're going to be in Colossians chapter four, verses two through six. So if you want to grab a Bible and turn there, that'd be absolutely fantastic. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some somewhere underneath the rows that you're sitting on. Uh, If you don't even have a Bible at all, like at your home, we would love for you to take that. That's like our gift to you. We would love for you to have uh, God's word, but we'll get into Colossians chapter four uh, in just a minute. Before we begin, I want to draw your attention back to something that we shared earlier on in this series. I think in our second week. Uh, It was an illustration that we used to sort of help us understand one of the central themes of this entire letter. It was a little illustration that looks something like this. You guys remember this? For those of you who are here, looks looks familiar. Uh, We use this to highlight who Jesus is and what he came to do. That, That Jesus is God in the flesh who has come to reconcile or reunite heaven and earth to forgive all of human sin and make right everything that sin has made wrong, both in us and in the world around us. We said that Jesus didn't just come to simply whisk us away to some uh, otherworldly heaven when we die and watch the world burn eventually or something like that, but rather to bring his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, here to earth itself, that this is what he is here to do. And one day he will complete this work and heaven and earth will be fully reunited. And those circles will completely overlap, which is what, whether we know it or not, we all actually long for and how things were always meant to be. But what we've seen through this letter is that God's intent for us, his people or his church is to be this little embassy of heaven on earth in the here and now a people who operate in this space where the heavenly is progressively invading the earthly. And so Paul has been teaching and encouraging us on how we are to operate as a people who embody more and more of the life of heaven in the here and the now. So he's been teaching us things like how we operate under the authority of Jesus and resist pressures from our culture that could pollute our community or the truth of the gospel. He's been talking to us about how we fight sin and put on righteousness and love and holiness, how we seek to embody these things in our marriages and in our parenting and at our jobs and all the other spheres of life that we find ourselves in, in our neighborhoods and our communities and our life groups and more. And really what we've seen is that it's it's something of an all-encompassing vision for us. And that's a good thing. Because sin is also an all-encompassing problem that has twisted every corner of this world. I mean, it doesn't, take, uh, it doesn't take a really keen observer to look out and see that there is still so much of that yet-to-be-redeemed circle out there all around us. Sin and brokenness abound. Friends and loved ones yet to know and be put back together with the love and grace of Jesus. Conflict and pain, sorrow and death and all sorts of other things are all around us. That's the reality that we, we currently live in. And so with that in mind, I want us to consider a, uh, a strange question this morning. 
What does this reconciliation of heaven and earth, this God reuniting heaven and earth or the heavenly with the earthly, what does this reconciliation of heaven and earth have to do with a Frisbee on a roof? Sounds strange. I get it. Now, you may be thinking that question is absolutely ridiculous. And the answer to it is fairly obvious. Absolutely nothing. Those two things have nothing to do with one another whatsoever. But what I hope to show us this morning in this text is actually something a bit different. Uh, That Paul's encouragement here actually speaks to this question in a way we may not expect. So let's get in and hopefully in a few minutes, despite how strange that question sounds, you'll see what I mean. So let's pick up in Colossians chapter four, verse two. This is what it reads. Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So what's obvious here is that Paul's words are a bit of a conclusion to the letter. He's he's wrapping things up with some final words and encouragement and instruction. And predominantly, that encouragement is to pray. That's the predominant thing he's he's, uh, landing with, to pray. To pray expectantly for God's work. To pray for the things that God desires in his world, saving people and and the spreading of his kingdom. To pray for him to open doors for the spreading of the gospel. He tells him specifically to pray for Paul, that he'd have the opportunity for more ministry. And to do all of this while being cognizant of the opportunities that they also have to embody and share this message of Jesus with those around him who are yet to know him. And it might be a little tempting to think that this is just a little bit of an add-on here to kind of help Paul land the plane a little bit, a bit like how we do when we're on the phone with someone and have kind of run out of things to say, you know what I I mean? Where we're like, well, hey, listen, really good to talk to you. Just want you to know I'm thinking about you. I hope you're thinking about me and I'll I'll see you soon, that sort of thing. But but I don't quite think that that that's it. This encouragement to pray is actually a very fitting instruction for everything else he's unpacked thus far. So the Greek here for continue steadfastly, it means to be unwaveringly attentive to something, to give something unrelenting care, to be constantly diligent, to persevere and not grow faint. And the word for be or the word for watchful is similar. It means to be vigilant or to give strict attention to. It's a very active-oriented word. Point being, Paul seems to be painting the picture here that part of how we faithfully live in that overlap of heaven and earth, that already but not yet overlap of the heavenly and the earthly, is with a robust life of prayer for the mission of God. A life that intercedes, which is just a fancy word for doing something on someone else's behalf, but a life that intercedes in prayer for others, that intercedes on behalf of the work of God, a life that is watchful and thankful for where God is working, a life that prays for where we need to see more and more of his work, for where more of his redeeming work is needed, and also a life that doesn't just think that God's answer to that prayer will necessarily be something or someone else outside of ourselves, but looks for and asks for the help and the wisdom to step into it powerfully and effectively and personally. Essentially, that we would be the kind of people 
who cares so much about what God is doing and the love that he has for those around us, that we are steadfastly attentive to praying for these things in the lives of others and the situations we find ourselves in. People who want the reconciling work of Jesus so much for our friends and neighbors and our world that we give unrelenting care and vigilant energy towards going to God on their behalf and asking him to open doors, to bring to us opportunities to love and share who he is and what he's done. Essentially, the vision is that we would be, as the church, this little community of intercessors, so to speak. That is what would define us. That is how we would operate. That, that we would be a people who steadfastly pray for the kingdom of God to come, like Jesus famously teaches in the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6. That it would be a fundamental part and practice of our lives that we seek to embody, or as we seek to embody that reality in the here and now. Which I think, at least for me, right, naturally prompts the question, does that actually describe how I pray? Like, does that actually describe my, my prayer life? Like, would the words robust or constantly diligent or vigilant for the kingdom of God and God's work in others describe my actual prayer life? This might just be me, uh, but I might more often use words like inconsistent or sporadic or seasonally dependent, if you know what I mean, right? Uh, or maybe I would say frequent, but most frequently about me, if you know what I mean. So here's what I know. Generally speaking, pretty much anytime we teach on prayer, there are a couple of different groups of people uh, in the room right now. So first, there are those that I affectionately call my direct line people. You, you guys know what I'm talking about? Meaning the kind of person that when you're around them, you sort of get the impression that they have a direct line to Jesus. Like they've got a direct connection. They got Jesus on speed dial, so to speak. Like they love prayer, right? They love prayer and they just seem to pray powerfully when you're around them. They remind me of the church ladies from my youth who like lived for the Tuesday evening prayer meeting. Like you just knew when Miss June prayed, God was listening and something was going to happen. Like these are the kind of people for whom prayer just seems to come so easily and so naturally. They immediately get excited for prayer sermons like these. Like they'll come up to me afterwards and say, man, pastor, I was praying on my prayer walk over here this morning for a prayerful sermon on prayer. Look at God. Look at God. Look at what he did. And listen, I'm, I'm not saying that to mock it, okay? Like, I, I want to be that, okay? That is the type of person I want to become. I told the men at our men's prayer breakfast the other morning that my dream is to be old and gray and praying powerfully over people at Hardy's in the morning when I retire. Like, that's what I want. That's where I want to be. And that dream doesn't have to be your dream, but it is my dream, okay? So I know, I know that's one group that we've got, our, our direct line people. But then there's kind of uh, the rest of us, right? There's the rest of us. The rest of us for whom when we start talking about prayer, we just go ahead and get ready to feel vaguely guilty. You know what I mean? Where it's like, all right, pastor, I know, I know, like prayer is good and I, I really do need to be doing it more than I am. So thanks for the reminder. I'll try harder and do better and that sort of thing. And you would never say this out loud, okay? You would never say this out loud, but I'll do it for you. But sometimes you look at the direct line people, with a little bit of suspicion, don't you? By that I mean you think, how can it be that natural and that easy for them? Because for you, prayer just feels frustrating. 
and confusing. It doesn't feel like something as natural as breathing. It feels like trying. It feels like work. It feels hard. When you sit down to pray, your mind can't help but drift into the million other places and million and one other things you have to do today or the questions about how this all even works or if God is even listening. And to boot, for some of us, there's this, there's this layer of disappointment and disillusionment too, right? Because maybe at one point in time, you did pray steadfastly, but it seemed to go unanswered or it seemed like God's response to your prayers was no, and you, and you don't know why. So now when it comes to prayer, you're just a bit timid to approach it altogether, especially with the type of language that Paul uses here, at least about anything that is truly meaningful. And so I know for many of us here this morning, Paul's words might feel like a good thing, but it can also feel like a difficult or even an impractical thing for us to step into. And what I want to do today is I want to try to help us a bit with that with no, no guilt trip or anything like that, but I, I just want to help us answer the questions like, what do we need to know and how do we need to think about prayer that could possibly help those of us who struggle with it to step into this vision God has for us together, that we might be a praying people. And that brings me to the Frisbee on the roof. So, most of you know uh, I'm in a season of life like many, uh, many of the rest of you in here where I am raising young children. Uh, And the thing that I have learned about kids, or at least the thing that I've learned about my kids, is that they have not just a habit, but a skill of getting themselves into situations that are completely over their heads. You know what I mean? Like the constant chorus, or a near constant chorus in my household, it goes something like this. Dad, dad, come here. Dad, I need you. Dad, can you help me? Dad, help with this. So for example, a while back, we were out in the, uh, they were out in the yard playing and I was inside doing something else. But soon, literally through closed doors and windows, I hear that shout. Dad, we need you. Which to be honest, in my mind, I thought could only be one of three things. That either one, there had been a fight uh, or two, someone had gotten hurt because of a fight or three, somebody needed help resolving something because of a fight, right? Like that, that's what was going down. Now, uh, luckily for me this time, there was no fight, but what had happened was they were outside playing with a Frisbee and one of them who shall remain nameless chunked it all the way to the top of, our two, of the roof of our two-story house, all right? Just got up there and it had, bring, brung, uh, it had brought their game to an abrupt and complete ruin and it put them in quite a pickle because my kids are, listen, the Baileys raise them small. There's no chance they're getting up there on a roof by themselves, okay? Now, just so you know what I'm feeling in the moment, all right? Like I, I don't do heights, okay? Like that is not, that's not my speed. Like I will do them because I don't like being called a chicken more than I don't like being up high. But if I have the option, all right, if it's up to me, I'm going to keep my feet firmly planted on the ground. But all of that goes out the window. When your kid is looking up at you, all distraught, saying, Dad, can you please help us? Can can you please help us? When that happens, as a dad, you suck it up and you get on that roof. Because my sub four foot children have no shot at getting that frisbee down by themselves. They just can't do it. In fact, if they had tried, their mother would have been the one doing the shouting, if you know what I mean. Like, everybody would have been in trouble at that point. They needed someone bigger, someone stronger someone more capable than themselves to step in. So they called me. They needed dad to get the Frisbee off the roof. 
So what does that have to do with prayer and the kingdom of heaven invading earth? It's understanding that when it comes to everything that we hope for, when it comes to everything that we long to see God do both in us and in our world, we are in over our heads. We're in over our heads. It's a mission and a calling that is too big for us. We cannot do it on our own. The Frisbee is on the proverbial roof and we need help. That's the situation that each and every one of us finds ourselves in. Now, listen, I get that that is a lighthearted, if not even cheesy illustration. But the reason I give it to you is because I wanted to find something that would stick into your brain. That when you walk out of here, you'd be able to think the Frisbee's on the roof. That's where I'm at. The Frisbee's on the roof. That when it comes to all the things that we've talked about through this entire series, not being pulled about by cultural pressures, fighting our sin, clothing ourselves with righteousness and love, brokenness being healed both in us and in those we love, in our marriages, in our families, at our jobs. When it comes to friends and neighbors and loved ones coming to faith in Jesus and finding hope and salvation in him, all of that is too big for you. All of that is too big for us. It is not something we can accomplish on our own. And that is precisely why Paul says what he says here. I mean, take verse three, for example. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Paul is writing this from prison. We don't need to miss that detail. He's not just trapped by a metaphorical door. He is trapped by a literal door. And so Paul knows that if his ministry is going to go forward and be fruitful, it's only going to happen if someone other than him steps in. Who opens doors? Paul knows it's not me. It's God. And listen, I know it's easy to blind ourselves to this reality, but this is the spot that you and I are always in too. We are far less in control than we think we are. I try to tell you this often, but there's not a one of us who is not one phone call away from having our lives completely upturned. We like to think we're in control, but we absolutely aren't. And we like to think we can accomplish a lot, but we can actually accomplish far less on our own than we think we can. For my sit on the bus, we tend to live in a world where we view the majority of human problems as what I would call technical problems. By that, I mean, we tend to think that the majority of the stuff that we face just requires a little more know-how or a little more elbow grease on our end to solve. So if we just had a few more tools in the tool belt or read another book or two or watched a YouTube video that we could tackle most things on our own. So what happens is we perceive the world we live in for the most part as makeable, one that we can and should be able to control, one that with the right tools and the right knowledge is not too big enough for us to manage. But the scriptures over and over and over again remind us of things like in Psalm 127 that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless it is the Lord who is doing it, it's not getting done. Or to bring it back to Colossians with how Paul started everything in chapter one, that the world itself is held together in Jesus Christ. Not by our expertise, not in our know-how, not in our hard work, or our well-laid out plans. It is Jesus who holds all things together. And I suspect that much of our struggle with prayer is often due to this misconception that we think about our problems and our role in this world 
as well as who God is and his role in this world as all just too small or too narrow. That the Frisbee isn't too far out of reach or the type of thing that only someone bigger, stronger, and more capable could actually accomplish. But in these short verses, Paul is encouraging us to see the world a different way, to begin to rethink how we understand and how we understand our lives and the world through the resurrection of Jesus, that we are dependent down to the very last drop. The way that I often say it is that we are after something as a people spiritual. We are after something spiritual. So that means we need God's spirit to do it. I'm fond of the way that Pete Grieg, the founder of uh, 24, the 24-7 prayer movement, puts it. He reminds us that our English word for prayer derives from the Latin precarious. We pray because life is precarious. We pray because we find ourselves at a loss for many things, but not for the simplest words like, please, thank you, wow, and help. You see, part of the way that we become a community of intercessors is by knowing the depths of our need for God's power. By knowing the depths of our need for God's power that we can't do it on our own. And the good news is that Jesus knows this too. He knows how daunting the mission before us can feel. He recognizes how fighting sin and putting on the way of Jesus and our relationships and our marriages, our parenting and elsewhere can so often feel like such an uphill battle. He knows the pressure from the world around you can often feel overwhelming and suffocating. He knows your burdens and your bruises and your disappointments and your frustrations in every category of life. The good news is that God knows the Frisbee is on the roof and he loves you and through Christ is committed to doing something about it. And prayer affords us the opportunity to bring everything that feels over our heads into his hands. That's what it does. Where we get to say to God, God, this is too big for me, but it's not too big for you. I love these words from Corey Ten Boom, a Christian who gave her life to help save Jews from the Nazi regime in World War II. If ever there were a spot where you would fill in over your head, she was in it. And she said, the wonderful thing about praying is that you leave a world of not being able to do something and enter God's realm where everything is possible. He specializes in the impossible. Nothing is too great for his almighty power. Nothing is too small for his love. Isn't that great? It's so true. And I think it naturally brings me to the second thing to know about prayer, that becoming a community of prayer doesn't just involve understanding our need for God's power, but also understanding his heart, specifically his heart for us. So my wife tells me that she thinks I have a hearing problem because there can be days in our house where that chorus from my kids, that just chorus of dad, dad, come, come, we need you, can just completely unfaze me, right? Like some, some of you parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like I can have a kid hanging off my arm saying, daddy, 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 and it's just completely whatever. Like I'm not even, like I don't even recognize it, right? I'm completely oblivious to it. I think another reason we often have difficulty with prayer is that because some of us are afraid that God might be a little bit like that too. You know what I mean? That he will just ignore us or tune us out or that he has more important things on his agenda to deal with 
than whatever we got going on that we want to bring to him in prayer. But one of my all-time favorite passages on prayer comes from Luke 18. Uh, And in it, Jesus teaches about a persistent widow who gets what she needs from an unrighteous judge because she won't stop bugging him. She just keeps coming to him over and over again, seeking justice for her situation. And eventually the unrighteous judge breaks down to her request. And Jesus says, if this is what happens when a widow gets after an unrighteous judge, how much more will God who loves you be attentive to you and your prayers? In a similar passage in Luke 11, Jesus says that God is a good and perfect father. And if we as sinful people still care and re- care about and respond in love to our children's requests and needs, how much more will God? Like, do you want to know why when my kids shouted for me when the Frisbee was on the roof? Like, you know why they shouted for me? Because they knew I cared. They knew I cared about them. That even if I didn't care about the Frisbee itself, they knew I cared about them. And they knew there was nothing in the world I would rather use my strength and capacity for than helping them. So they, they knew, hey, we've got a problem. We need to go get dad. And what should motivate you to pray and keep praying is knowing that the God of the universe is not indifferent towards you. He's not indifferent towards you. He is way. He is so much better than that. Like the scriptures are clear. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you are God's child. Because of his work on the cross, you belong to him. And that means he cares about you. And he cares about everything going on in you and around you. He cares about what you're facing in this life, however big or small it might seem. He cares about what you care about. He cares about the still unredeemed parts of this world that absolutely break your heart. And he actually delights for you to come to him with it. I love how Revelation often talks about it. Revelation says that our prayers come before the nose of God like incense, that it smells sweet to him, that he delights in his people's prayers, that he delights for you to come to him with it, that he might actually do something about it. And here I feel like I need to say, that I know for some of us, those are, those are probably hard words to hear because you have prayed for things. And it seems like those prayers have gone unanswered or told no. And it wasn't like you were praying for bad things or selfish things, but things that God calls good and yet still nothing. Listen, I don't know why God doesn't answer every prayer the way that we want him to. But here's what I do know. For one, I know that this is a part of the beauty and the danger of what God offers to us in Jesus. Because through the gospel, he offers to us himself. He offers to us relationship with him to know him intimately and personally. He offers us intimacy. And the reality is, is that the people you are the closest to have the greatest propensity to bring you joy and pain. And God invites us into that kind of intimacy with himself for all of its highs and lows. And so that's one. But the other thing is I know that it's not because he's not good and it's not because he doesn't love you. That even if he never answers any of our prayers, we can know with certainty exactly how God feels about us because of Jesus. The cross tells us that we are so loved by God that he was willing to stop at nothing to save us that he was willing to die for you to make you his own. And because he is alive, he is going to make right all that is wrong in this world. 
that he is going to make right everything that has been made wrong one day. And so while, while I may not have every answer I want now, what these things tell me is that I can trust him because I know his character. And I can know that even if I can't see or understand an answer, that doesn't mean there isn't one. And so part of growing as a people of prayer is knowing God's heart for us. But, but lastly, part of growing in prayer by knowing God's heart is not just knowing his heart for you, but his heart for the world too. Knowing the things that he cares about. And that's sort of the drumbeat throughout these four verses, essentially that their eyes might be focused upward and outward to God and what he might be doing, not just on what they've got going on and what their needs are, but for the sake of Paul and others around him, for the work of God in their midst. In my experience, praying for ourselves, for our needs and desires is certainly necessary. But when praying is hard, focusing on praying for others can often get you out of that rut. And I think this is because praying for others operates out of that circle illustration from earlier. It's sensing and feeling that so many people around you are still full of the brokenness of this earth. There's still so much happening in that yet to be redeemed portion of the circle. And it's all around you that, the, that there's so many amongst us who are full of the brokenness of earth and the destruction of sin. So that when we see our neighbors we don't see, just see them as an annoying hindrance blocking our way out of the neighborhood, but a person who only has this world to live for, who is without hope and without God in this world, but is deeply loved by him, is deeply loved by him just as you are. And his desire is to bring more of that overlap of heaven and earth into their life or into their circumstances or whatever it may be. So when we see them, we pray. We pray for exactly what Paul prays for, an open door for the gospel into their lives, for God to do a supernatural work in them, for their salvation, for an opportunity to have a meaningful conversation with them, to invite them to life group or whatever it may be. And the truth is, is that these opportunities are all around us when our eyes are actually open to see it. And I think we have trouble praying often because we go through our days with with something like blinders on, as if life is a movie all about me and everyone else is just a character actor in my own personal Truman Show. In a world where we are all bent over our screens for hours a day, it seems constantly drawing in on ourselves. I can think of few healthier habits, to be honest with you, than looking up and out and praying for others, being drawn out of ourselves Noticing the needs of others around us, seeing where the kingdom of heaven is yet to invade, where the brokenness of earth still reigns, and asking God to do something about it. Because intercessory prayer emerges from a heart that loves what God loves. Specifically, it loves who God loves. I heard a pastor recently say that the formula to become an intercessor is one, understanding our role in the story and God's role in the story, and two, a heart that is broken for what has broken the heart of God. That when those two things combine, they lead to powerful praying people. When you love someone and you realize that they have a need that exceeds your capacity to fill, you pray. But here's the thing, you can't love someone that you don't notice. So going back to the story with my kids, they certainly could have thrown the Frisbee on the roof and just ignored it, right? I mean, they're kids and they have 
100% done stuff like that in the past where they could have just moved on like, oh, well, out of sight, out of mind, on to the next thing. But no, instead they looked up. They looked up, they saw the need and they called for help. And I think part of the call of this passage is for us to bring our eyes up too, to look around, to see the proverbial Frisbee on the roof all around us, all of the areas that need God's redeeming touch. And perhaps the place for us to begin with prayer isn't to start by just thinking about everything we need to ask God for or the list of things that you think ought to be on your prayer list, but rather to simply ask God for a heart that sees the bigger picture, for a heart that sees this life for what it is, and a heart that breaks for what breaks God's heart as well. And so where does all of this lead us? Well, I mean, I think the application point for the sermon is pretty simple, right? You probably saw it from the time we started. I think the application today is to pray. It's for us to pray. I quote these words uh, from Jim Cimbala often when I teach on prayer, and I want to speak them over, over you again. He says, if we call upon the Lord, he has promised in his word to answer, to bring the unsaved to himself, to pour out his spirit among us. If we don't call upon the Lord, he has promised nothing, nothing at all. It is as simple as that. No matter what I preach or what we claim to believe in our heads, the future will depend on our times of prayer. Point, point being, we need to look at the ways in which we live our lives in the ordinary world, right? The ways in which maybe we just try to fit God into our world, so to speak, or manage things on our own, and instead look to get our lives into God's world, to learn to see things the way he sees them and bring all of our energy and resources into his world through prayer. So who do you know? Who do you know that is far from the overlap of heaven and earth? Maybe there's a person or a situation, someone you want to trust Jesus, or maybe a marriage or a family that needs healing and help, and you don't know what else to do or what else to say. The invitation this morning is to intercede for them in prayer to come to God in prayer and ask him to do what you can't in your own power do. Are you in a rut? Is prayer the furthest thing from robust and vigilant in your life? The invitation is to pray, to come to God and ask him to help you, to change you, to lift the thing that is too heavy for you to lift, to get the Frisbee off of your own roof. Are you in a place of disillusionment and need to draw to him and work through that so you can vigilantly intercede for the kingdom. The invitation is to pray, to bring even that before him and ask him to help, to come to him in the intimacy that he provides you so that his strong hand can hold you up. Because here's the beautiful thing. This morning, you may not feel like a direct line person, but because of the gospel of Jesus, you are one even if you don't feel like it. The beauty of the gospel is that God has given himself to you. And through Christ, he has attached himself to you. And if you are in Christ, the overlap of heaven and earth already exists in you. And you can go to him anytime you want. And he has promised to be there and listen at all costs. So your prayers might feel like work 
and they might feel like trying and it might feel confusing and broken and messy, but God is there and he hears you and delights over every eloquent or every broken and muddy last word. And what I am realizing is the way we grow here is not simply by believing in the power of prayer, but knowing the power of Jesus. It's not by knowing the heart of prayer, but by knowing the heart of Jesus. We don't grow in prayer by simply being really into prayer, but rather we grow in prayer by being really into Jesus. So as we come to the end of Colossians, may we be really into Jesus, God in the flesh, who has come to make right all that sin has made wrong. Jesus, our God, with the power and the heart to get the Frisbee off the roof.